love beautiful homes. If I'm in a physical space that I don't feel comfortable in, I actually genuinely feel low. But more than that, a place can call to you. I remember wanting to buy a home in Primrose Hill many, many years ago and it fell through and I couldn't go back there. People say, I'll meet you for coffee in Primrose Hill. I said, no, you're not. <laughs> I don't like it. <laughs> Never liked Primrose. It's full of lovers yeah. and they'd go, really, Mary? And it was just me really not wanting to be there because I wasn't there. And so I found a house and I live in the road that Paddington's filmed in. It's really cute. It's beautiful. Hello, welcome to Homing In. My name's Matt Gibbard, and this podcast is brought to you by our team at The Modern House. The Modern House is, of course, a design-led estate agency which sells and celebrates the most beautiful homes across the UK. And this podcast reflects our complete obsession with the idea of home and its importance in people's lives. My guest today is the wonderful Mary Portis. Most of us know Mary as a swashbuckling TV presenter with a flame red bob, but her career away from the screen has been no less remarkable. She did the window displays for Topshop during its heyday. She was the creative director of Harvey Nichols around the time it was immortalised on the show Absolutely Fabulous, of course. And she's even managed to reinvent the bleak genre of charity retail with her chain of shops for Save the Children. Nowadays, she runs her consultancy, Portis, which helps brands to create purpose and beauty in everything they do. Today, I've come to meet Mary at her office in central London. As is the tradition on this podcast, I've asked her to talk about her childhood home, her current place, uh, plus also a home of the future. What this reveals, I think, is an incredibly rich life story. It starts with being made homeless as a teenager when she lost both of her parents and culminates with establishing the most amazing sense of community in her 60s. Despite having a more demure blonde hairdo these days, Mary's certainly lost none of her characteristic fire, but she's also a very sensitive and thoughtful soul with a huge amount of wisdom to impart. So we always start with going back to first principles, which is where you grew up, and, and specifically the house that you grew up in. So it was in Watford, am I right? Tell us about it. Well, I thought we were quite glamorous and, and wealthy, That's, was, which was ridiculous. We had a little semi-detached, but it was a corner plot. And so we had a big garden at the front. Well, I thought it was a big garden. It was not at all. But I, I just loved the place. You know, I, I didn't know any... any different so I was one of five kids and it was only a three-bedroom semi so it was always busy Um, and I think probably subsequently I've tried to recreate that my whole life and it was an old Victorian terrace it just felt solid Mm -hmm. Um, I drove my little son back there um, last summer I think it was and I pulled up outside it had um, oh my god the tree silver birch in the front garden. I always used to sit under that silver birch on the wall. It was a very old brick wall. I remember the tiny, tiny little seeds that fell off the silver birch were often on my legs, you know. Anyway, I drove him and I pulled up and this guy was in the front garden. And I said, look, I'm really sorry. Um, this is my childhood home. Do you mind if I come in? Just to show it to my son, he said, are you Mary? And I said, yes, I am Mary. And he said, I was hoping one day you'd come back. Oh. And it was so beautiful. And when he bought it and he was doing it up, his brother brought him my autobiography and said, I think Mary Porter's lived here. And so he read it and, and I used to talk about sitting in the porch dreaming and, and just hanging in the porch at the front, which was so important to me. And he said, I, when I did this porch up, I thought, I wonder if she'll ever see this again. It was just such a beautiful moment. Wow. I actually didn't go back in the house. Okay. I stood in the garden and... The irises that my mother used to grow, she still had the bulbs for. Lovely, big, purple, purple irises. I don't know, somehow, I didn't want to... It was their space now, and I didn't want them to think, oh, I'm in any way coming in and looking at this through my eyes of what I expected it to be. So I didn't go in, but I just had a very lovely time. I don't know about you, but I dream about my childhood home yes. quite a lot, do you? Yes. What do you think about then? Well, I'm sure a lot of that has to do with safety. Fundamentally, the role of parents is that we bring children up and we create a safe space. You know, from when you're a baby and you're born and you're wrapped and you're put into a little crib, you know, I think your home is a space... I mean, just even that line, I'm going home. 
Um, it's really important. And I, I even remember uh, when I divorced first and um, when my son said, I want to go home. And I just thought, please let it be the home that we're now in and not your father's. But then I thought, no, both can be your home. How do I manage this, mm. you know, so that both places become home for you? Mm. But I think dreaming of your home, which I do often, I think maybe is this fact of, that we all need to feel safe. What kind of kid were you? Well, I was fourth out of five, and, I, and I, I just remember feeling I didn't have a place, really. You know, I wasn't the eldest, I wasn't the firstborn, I wasn't the youngest. So you've got a podcast called Beautiful Misfits, yeah. right? It was, is that you? Were you a beautiful misfit? Yes, but yeah. I didn't want to be, really, deep down. I spent a lot of time trying to be what I wasn't. And then you realise, actually, it's your gift and it's who you are. How did you get on at school? As a, as a bit of a misfit? Well, I was very popular and very naughty, but I was also a mimic and a performer. So I always had huge amounts of friends because my mother died when I was 16 and my father when I was 18. And so I, I wanted to recreate family all the time. But actually, I've realised that solitude is a vital, vital part of my life that I need. And actually, I've become quite a lone wolf. Or maybe I was, but I didn't allow it before. Mm. So you touched on there, obviously, a, you know, a, a real period of grief that you had, hugely formative. How would you describe that in relation to your home environment? Well, that home that I talked about that was full of life just became completely and utterly dead. I mean, horrendous. I never had a front door key because my mother was always there. <laughs> she had five kids and you'd come home and there was always a smell of cooking. And as we got slightly older, my elder siblings, if they were going out, my mother would just leave a list in the kitchen and you had to sign your name if you came in. So she got up in the night, she checked the list to see that we were in. My mother died and my elder brother Michael was training in architecture and he was working in Sudan. My sister had just started UCH, so she was in London studying. And I was the one that was sort of left at home with my younger brother, who was 14. So my brother Joe was in, in, in hairdressing, so he was just always out. And um, I would come home to an empty house. I knew I had come home to that. It was horrendous. Yeah. And I, 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 to this day with my children, I just don't allow them to come into an empty house. I think it's a horrible feeling. I mean, that's my hang-up. It's not that you, you can still, you know, make... Um, children feel secure but it was horrible and even even talking about it now I go back there and I feel traumatised slightly by it mm. Did you have to do the cooking and stuff yes. then? Yeah, so you grew up massively quickly. It's really funny my, my brother um, my younger brother Lawrence is with me at the moment we're, we're living together for a few months and we had friend, a friend for supper last night, my brother was the most extraordinary cook and she said when did you learn to cook and he, we both started to laugh but it wasn't funny because it was, he was 14 and I was 16 and we would cook the meal because my father was working and we had no idea what we were doing mm. and so I didn't see cooking as a joy at all I thought it was a chore um, and he's learned to see it take his time over it and has actually you know loves it now but um, and I do but it took a long while to get mm. to that yeah um, I want to ask you about resilience because you've got kids, I've got kids, it's, it's the thing that you want to instill in them. But of course, you must have developed massive resilience just through all those experiences. How, how do you make sure that they have that? Well, I, I think if you'd have asked me that when my eldest son, who's now 28, was born, I'd have sort of taught him what I was taught. I think resilience, um, resilience comes from a real sense of love for the world. I, I, I thought resilience had to be you get out there and you fight. You know? <laughs> Actually, I think it's completely the opposite. It's a much softer thing. And understanding that there are people or things that will happen in your life. And often it's because people don't know they're hurting what they're doing. Mm. But if you know what love is and remember those warm times in your life, then you'll be able to walk away or not get involved in a, a sort of aggressive response. And I think that will give you great resilience and understanding that, you know, that what comes at you in the world is, is outside all of our control, mm. but it's how we respond to it, which is where we can manage it. 
you know, if someone was mean to my elder son at school, I'd be saying, you know, you think of a great word back. You know, this is 20 odd. I would never do that today. Why wouldn't you? Because I think I would see that whoever's doing that to me now is in pain or mm. whatever reason they're doing it. If you can just stop, just stop and connect back to yourself, then that, that I think, is the greatest strength that you can have. So those negative experiences that you've had, how, how have they manifested themselves in your character over the years, do you think? Well, I was going to be an actress and I got into Rada when I was 18. Oh. And so that's where I always thought all my naughtiness and my expression went onto the stage. But my father then died and I was, oh, it's just, it's slightly Dickensian and I still feel embarrassed talking about it even at this age. Because my father remarried about 18 months after my mother died and he died nine months later of a heart attack. It was just completely crazy in his 50s. But he left our family home to his second wife. So we were all homeless. And so going to Rada, or I had no money, and I just, and my younger brother was 16. It was just a terrible time. And so I enrolled in the local Watford College of Art, and part of it was retail store design. And I was like, yeah, that sounds creative. But I was in such trauma and pain that I was just horrible. I used to go in angry. I was angry. Mm. And I remember I used to use the photo, photo labs and, you know, just go in and dye my jeans and just, it was all the time it was post-punk, but it was that real anger that was around, you know. I hated it, I hated them, I just thought it was, you know, I was above all this, you know, I, I just didn't like it at all. And poor tutor, I mean, I was just, and she said, um, you'll have no future in retail. And I thought, I don't want to bloody go into retail, you know, I don't give a <laughs> shit whether I have no future, I don't want it. And I sort of stormed off and then I was like, what are you going to do? You know, suddenly, you know, I was 21, 22. What are you going to do? You have no money, you have no home. I just remember saying to my friend who'd got a job in Harrods, and I thought, well, yeah, well, that's where I want to go. And I suddenly just focused, and I found out the name of the personnel manager then, the guy who'd interviewed her, and I gave the name. And every day, and I didn't even have a phone, I would go into the tutor's office. I knew she put the key above the door, and she'd go to lunch, and I'd ring this guy. And he'd say, we haven't got jobs, we've closed, there is no more jobs on the training scheme, the management training scheme. And I just rang him for six weeks in the end, he said, someone's born out coming for an interview. And I remember ringing my sister and her giving me <laughs> an outfit to wear, this kind of pencil skirt with a white shirt, and I went in and I got the job. And I went on the training scheme at Harrods. And part of it was you would do all the visual merchandising and display. And it was all, you know, the big studio used to be underground, massive, under Harrods. It was like this another world. Of, so you'd have the, the place where they made the handmade chocolates. You'd go in there, there'd be all these women making the handmade chocolates going there. There'd be another one where they were doing all the fabrics. And then there'd be the big display studio with the mannequins and the props. And, and you could just create these windows. It was like being in the theatre for me again. And so I found my place. And loved it. And one day I was in the windows and Malcolm Claren knocked on the windows because I was doing these really crazy windows. And he said, I've got some shops on King's Road you want to come do? I started doing that and then I'd drive around in my little open-top spitfire. It just, my life started to then take, I think I had sort of like five years of grieving terribly and then I, uh, my life opened up and I thought, oh, this is good. And then I met my future husband, he was a very sort of a great sort of business chemical engineer and he said why aren't you doing something you've got a clever mind put it into you need to be trained to this you could go into management I'm like I'm not good management and we found this job ad for Topshop Oxford Circus I was 26 and he's helped me apply for it and I remember turning up and met this woman who interviewed me, Jenny Greenshields, and she said, I'm getting a job. And I was given Topshop Oxford Circus to do all their visuals and windows. Team of five, and it was crazy. It was a time of Boy George and all the bands, and I just had, there were the huge windows, and I would just install live music, and the fashion was just taking off. It was just, in, you know, crazy time. And that's how it all started. Mm. And then I got sort of recognised from that, and then... Harvey Nichols. Harvey. Yeah, so you're creative director at Harvey mm. Nichols. Mm. What was that experience like? Because you've talked about how difficult that was as a woman in that environment. Can you can you touch on that? Well, the weird thing. It's still bloody weird to this day. Most boards and businesses are run by men. Mm. 
And when you get into fashion, most designers, <laughs> most businesses, if you look at even all the luxury brands today, heading them up, men, men, and they're selling to women. And there's no two ways about it. There is this sort of, you know, acceptance. Well, we've been, well, we've been, all of us are part of the patriarchy that has to fall or has to shift. And I'm in there in the 90s. It was absolutely right then, still. Mm. I mean, look, we, we, someone said to me, say, oh my God, Mary, um, you know, there's an amazing stat that there's a lot more CEOs, women's are in retail now. And then you look at the stat and it's like, 30% more this year, but they are still below 40% of chief executives. I'm going, oh, when I'm meant to go, wow, this is great. No, this is shit. <laughs> but well, I didn't think any of that. When I went in, so when I was at um, Topshop, it was owned by the Burton Group and Sir Ralph Halpern. And he was very sort of ahead of his time, but he realised that so much of great retail was experience. And it was all happening in the States. And he used to send me, I was, what, 27 go off and see these stores in New York or go over. It was amazing. And because I was the only one that did that job, all the senior managers and the men who were running the businesses couldn't quite get their head around how to deal with it. He did. He was a real visionary. So he would ask me to come up to his offices. I used to nearly wet myself. I was this kid going up to the chairman who ran the biggest businesses because he couldn't speak to any the sales director who I reported to because what the hell did the sales director know about retail experience which was really starting to happen where stores were becoming these incredible places where you wanted to hang and be you know it was fantastic so um and scary at the same time but boy did I learn and they owned Harvey Nicks at the time and then he said to me I want to move you across to Harvey Nichols and I was like I don't want to go to Harvey Nichols I was looking after 400 top shops you know and I was my hair was a different colour every bloody week. It was fashion. I don't want to go to some old party dry store in Knightsbridge. I'm like this kid from, you know, fashion. And I remember turning up and I had this green streak at the bottom of my hair. It was all the time the fluorescent band. And meeting the buying director and she was just sitting totally head to toe in um, a liar. And I'm like in this, oh, well, shit, I'm in the wrong world here. And it was just, well, it was just the best journey I've ever had. It was just fantastic. But what I did, it was loss-making. I just instinctively did stuff that I just thought was creative and would inspire me. I didn't think about selling. I didn't think of it as a marketing job. I just, and so I did with the windows, started off with the windows, doing what I did, had done at Topshop, but on a bigger scale. And getting artists in. And it just became its playground. So I went to Wendy Dagworthy at the Royal College and Louise Wilson. I said, right, you tell me who you think are going to be the future big designers and I'll give them their shows. And of course, no one had put catwalk shows on in a department store. And so I started doing that, gave Philip Tracy his first show. And I, I got <laughs> Izzy Blow to style them. It was crazy, you yeah. know. And so we would get the world, the fashion world would be coming to Harvey Nicks to see who the next young designers were. And so once we started doing that, the designers wanted to be in our store because we were the cooler. So it all started to come together and it was just, and the more you did this, the crazier it got, the more you became just, you, you naturally responded to the rhythm rather than strategically creating the path. Mm. And it was magical, magical, you know. And of course all these women would come in and go, I, and this is crazy. I'm, I'm not quite sure I understand it, but I love it. Mm. Do, do you know? And so, therefore, the byproduct was that they bought from there. Mm. And that's been always, to this day, my belief in what great commerce is. If you make people feel fantastic about this and joyful and want to be in space, whether it's a home or a physical store. But what happened was, and the reason why I left, is that when it became very successful, and I became a board member and was promoted, actually what they then did lost what actually was the magic, which was the risk and the instinct. Sure. And, the, and you had to go in and see the money men and sell your idea in. And in the end you go, oh, shit, no. you've taken the soul out of this. Mm. We've lost the magic. Mm. The magic was instinctive. Mm. The magic was culturally resonating with a mood. When you do that, you go, oh, that one's going to work. So... You know, when I, Abfab, I, I was on a shoot, a photo shoot, uh, and Betty Jackson was on the phone to Jennifer Saunders, and I said, and she was laughing, she said, oh my God, Jennifer Saunders is um, doing a series, um, and it's going to be a send-up on fashion. I said, oh God, 
give me a call. What? If she wants to film, give me a number, will you? So I rang her and said, look, if you ever want to film in half units, you can free. I'll lend you any clothes. And, of course, we got name-checked the whole time. It was yeah. just like, I go to Harvey Nooks, darling. And then the Hab Fab went global, and we were... It just was a mad... Now, I couldn't have put that in a strategy. Mm. <laughs> Where was that going to come? Oh, I'm thinking of... What do you think? Do you think Hab Fab might be there? Do you think it's going to be risky? This is what's killed retail today. Boards of boring second guesses. Mm. And really, why the luxury brands do so well is a creative director who's there again. That's it. That's a feeling. I'm going to take it. I'm going to create. And people are going to be magnetised as opposed to sold to. Just a quick one. I'm really pleased to say that this podcast is sponsored by one of my all-time favourite brands, Vitsu. Over the past 25 years or so, I've been very lucky to visit hundreds of beautifully designed living spaces. And if I could name one product that I've seen more than any other, it would have to be the 606 Universal Shelving System from Vitsu. I think the reason that so many people from the creative industries live with Vitsu shelving is because it's so incredibly versatile, both functionally and visually. It works in big spaces and small ones, modern places, traditional places, townhouses and country houses. And the key to its success, I think, is that it's been paired back to its absolute essentials. Dieter Rams, who conceived it back in 1960, famously said that good design is as little design as possible. And I couldn't agree more with that. To find out more about this brilliant product, you can visit vitsu.com. That's V-I-T-S-O-E dot com. Right, back to the podcast. Well, let's talk about your current home which is mm. in Primrose Hill mm. in North London. Tell us about it. Presumably it's a Victorian terraced house, right? Yeah, a bit different Victorian terrace to my life grew up in. Exactly. <laughs> why, so why, why that house and not another house? Why did you buy it? Well, you see, I also have this thing that it's, it's less... It isn't, it's not less about the house. It's, I love beautiful homes. I mean, I mm. love it. I, if I'm in a physical space that I don't feel comfortable in, I actually genuinely feel low. So it really is vital to me. But more than that, I also a place can call to you. I remember wanting to buy a home in Primrose Hill many, many years ago and it fell through and I couldn't go back there. And people say, I'll meet you for coffee in Primrose Hill. I said, no, you're not. <laughs> I don't like it. <laughs> Never liked Primrose. It's full of lovelies. Yeah. And they'd go, really, Mary? And it was just me really not wanting to be there because I wasn't there. And so I found a house, uh, an old Regency house. I live in the road that Paddington's filmed in, you know, and it's really cute. It's beautiful, and they're beautiful, and they're solid, and there's a, there's a view. They're white, they're tall, you know, but I, I, it's my home. A, it's in Primrose Hill, which I adore, and, I'm, you know, you know everybody, and it, it just is that. It's a wonderful little ecosystem of great community. Um, but it's, it's my home... And there was a beautiful poem I should read it to you by David White. Can I read you my poem? Please. It's called The House of Belonging. And this is what I think about my London home. This is the bright home in which I live. This is where I ask my friends to come. This is where I want to love all the things it has taken me so long to learn to love. This is the temple of my adult aloneness. And I belong to that aloneness as I belong to my life. There is no house like the house of belonging. Beauty. That is just wonderful, isn't it? It's my home as a woman of 60 who... It's my home on my own. Even though my children come there, it's my home. It's the first time I've created my home where I haven't had to be with any partner or go, that colour, no, it's that colour. It's a, a softer than where I've been before, and maybe that's the time of my, you know, life where I'm feeling softer, I don't know. When you say softer, what do you mean? Maybe the palette that I've chosen, the art that's in it. I, I used to be very bold colours, apart from the loo, which is House of Hackney Crazy Wallpaper. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a big loo. I always like a, a, I can't bear tiny loo. I, I like a warm, good-sized loo. It's, it, that's my old sort of... But the rest is, is, is soft. I, very woods, soft woods, beautiful, beautiful. I love wood. So mm. I had all the um, kitchen-made cabinets all made all the way through the whole basement 
and the floorings all went in there. And they're just so soft, and even the little brass, soft, soft, um, tiny um, handles that I, I, I love touching, you know, and interacting with. So there is a soft, it's not just the palette, it's the materials. Um, I've never been a glass and metal girl. And sort of, uh, the paint that I've chosen has a body to it, you know, it's a real creaminess, I think. Yeah. Mm. So it's, if it's a house just for you, you've come to terms with solitude now then, and that's, is that now a positive thing for you? Yeah, I crave it. It's where I actually become... Mm. I mean, they'll laugh here because I'll go, right, don't disturb, I'm, don't, I'm taking time out. But I need, that, I need to know there's nothing in my diary. Whereas I, that's completely different from how I was. Mm. I mean, look, my children all come there, so they'll be like, this weekend they'll have a full house. But there's... It's my house on my own when they're not there. And it's mainly my place of solitude, which I also create from that place of solitude. And I'd never given that expanse to my life before. So it's made you more creative. Yes, and I think it's made me more connected to the universe in a greater way. Describe that. What do you mean by that? In that we are all completely interconnected. And... By being still and by having solitude, I am able to, through the physicality of that home, whether it's sitting on my chair or actually being in my garden or even sitting on my doorstep, I, I actually put my shoes on. I think my neighbours think I'm a bit mad. Outside on my doorstep, there's something about sitting on the stoop, which I just love, um, and put my shoes on out there just to sort of embrace this physical space. And you realise when you do that, that we are not transient, we are part of this wonderful ecosystem, not only of nature, but of those people and the energy around. And it's given me the time to do that and feel that. So um, are you someone that gets anxious? No. No. Why did you ask if I get anxious? Because I I, I suspected the answer would be no. Yeah. But but only only because I think... Uh, a home for a lot of people is a place for them to retreat from their anxieties. Yeah, yeah. Not anxious, although I do get times where I find myself... Breathless, yeah. Yeah, I've got... You know, that is my nature. So I I have to make my home tidy. I cannot bear mess. I think space, when you've created it and chosen what's to be in there and... I just don't want that mess. Mm. Also, my mind's too busy. I need calm, my desk, my books, where they go, where my pen is, where my plug for my iPhone is. And I know when they've been, I say, who's moved the iPhone? And they know, I just don't use my home, be in my home. That's the same in my country. Don't move my stuff, you know? And I'm allowed to say that now. (laughs) How how old are your kids now? Milo's 28, Verity's 26, and Horatio's 10. So you're on the telly. People will recognise you when you go out and about. Not so much anymore. It's fantastic. Because of the hair. Mm. <laughs> mm. Mm. Does it make a big difference? Do you know, a huge, really funny. Really? Um, there's a shop around the corner, let's see what it is. And um, she always used to jump out and say, Oh, Mary, if you have any five minutes, please, I'd love time with your coffee. You know, pick your brains. Um, and I came back after not having my hair in orange bob and my dog did a poo outside her shop. And she came out and she said, Could you mind removing that poo? And I'm like, you don't know it's me. But I saw the person. I'm like, oh, right. That's interesting. Yeah. I said, no, don't worry, I will remove the poo. She said, no, I didn't, it's me. Hilarious. As someone that is in the public eye, does, what does that do for your sense of home? Does, that, does the home assume greater meaning somehow? Don't know. I don't, I've never thought of it in that way. Each person's home, whether they're known in the public eye or not, is a place that we that should be loved and also uh, uh, shared. Okay. I love sharing my home. That's a very generous statement that you made there, because a lot of people don't think like that. What was generous that I share it? Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm actually a very. That sounds really. But I am very generous. I am. <laughs> if I do, I, say no. So. Some people have said that. If I do say <laughs> someone, people. I know I am. I will give away what I have. You know. Yeah. That is a, a part I like of myself. I will mm. give. Um, I'm a, a very generous in that, but I'm also... How would I describe it? Because it's difficult. I, I find it difficult caring for myself and putting myself first. And I think that's just years of, you know, um, 
doing so. And that that doesn't maybe balance with what I've said about solitude, but it I do find it. Um, I, I'm not very good at that. I am, and I do sort of extend myself because I feel I'm very privileged. I've had a privileged life. I had a, a huge amount of trauma. I think where I've been like on the floor, but I've had massive privilege. So and, and joy. So I, I, I'm sort of like those graphs that go like that. Mm. I'm hoping I'm on that one. I think I'm on that one. I just don't want to go back down. <laughs> Just a quick aside, I wanted to tell you briefly about my day job. So I'm the co-founder of a pair of design-led estate agencies, one called The Modern House and the other called Inigo. Uh, The Modern House is dedicated to the best examples of modernist and contemporary architecture. And Inigo, on the other hand, represents pre-modern housing. So everything from a Victorian workers' cottage in town to a Georgian rectory in the country. The idea is that via those two platforms, we are able to provide a pre-filtered selection of the most beautiful and well-designed homes for sale in the UK at any one time. Alongside the sales listings, there's all sorts of inspirational content as well. So there's house tours of amazing spaces, area guides, exhibition guides, cultural recommendations and things like that. So if you're looking to buy or sell a place or you want some inspiration for your own home, do take a look at our two websites, themodernhouse.com and inigo.com. Right, back to the podcast. Do you think that that vertical townhouse works well for modern living? Because actually, we sort of moved away from that a lot, haven't we? What do you think? <laughs> I don't know what it does. Maybe if I get old and I'm, I'm running up these bloody stairs. Yeah. But I, yeah, I just, I just, I don't know. I just love the house. Mm. Modern living. What is modern living? I'm living in it. I'm modern, aren't I? I don't know. What is modern living? And sometimes it annoys me a basement kitchen mm. because you actually spend a lot of time down there. Well, it's often the way in Victorian houses. Yeah. It does mean you can sort of deliberately go upstairs to work or deliberately yes. go upstairs yes. to sleep. And there is yes. that sense yes. of separation, yeah. isn't there? Guy across the road from me, he has his sitting room on the same floor as my bedroom. Right. And I did say to his wife, just, I said, does David ever see me naked open the curtain? She said, he doesn't even look at me naked, Mary. I said, all right, there you go, love. Sometimes, and actually lately what I've been doing, I don't know why I'm doing it. It's insane. I don't draw the curtains. I love ah. looking across at the lovely white, you know, it's a beautiful, sweet crescent. And I love looking at those houses going to finish my curtains, which are divine. And so I fall asleep with the curtains open, but I put a lavender eye mask on because I, I don't know what it is. I just don't draw the curtains. I haven't done it for the last two months. Wow. Maybe it's because I was ill with flu and I didn't... I just wanted to keep that look out, you know? So... But you're, you are... And that comes back to generosity again. You're amazingly comfortable with, with sort of putting yourself on show, aren't you? Well, the neighbours see me pull the curtains back and my boobs out. I did think about it, actually, because I do sleep naked, but I... Sorry, this is far too much information, but I did think about when I was designing the house, which actually put the cupboard... I've got the cupboards alongside, but my knicker drawer's right by the window. Not a good one. I should have moved that around. My shoes are at the other end, you see. That was not a good move. Job for tonight. <laughs> no, because no, it's drawers and it's all a lovely system and it's all got it all a bit wrong. You put this great picture of you on Instagram, out in your pyjamas in the street. I did. Picking up litter. Well, I, and do you know, I think I started a little bit of a campaign on it. Everything we read in the news is just so horrible. And, you know, once you realise that the news is about instant stuff and negativity works better as headlines, you actually have to go away from that and say, what else is happening in the world? And when you scrape a bit deeper... There's so many beautiful things being done, so many incredible things. I mean, some real, you know, humanity's creativity has come to the fore through this trauma, for sure. And I think we need to shine more of a light on that. And so for January, we just said, well, let's do a bit of joy. Let's small acts that you could do that just make the world a little bit better. And once you start from yourself, within yourself, it goes out into the world. And then that just gets bigger. And one of the... (laughs) Pick up the rubbish that's not yours. This, this is all about what you call the kindness economy, right? I've got lots of words for it. It's... Look, the only way that we're going to make this world better, the only way we're going to be able to live on this planet is by changing. That, that is fundamental. So, 
I did a TED talk a couple of years ago and all my life in business, I could even take it back to my Harvey Nichols days of why I wanted to leave, is I'm having to sit with you guys and explain a beautiful idea why it will make you money as opposed to this is a beautiful idea money will come the right money mm. do you see the balance that I'm talking about I didn't know it then but something stuck in me when they would make me structure and you had to talk in a business way and I remember I was doing this talk and I'd just written my book Work Like a Woman looking at all the time I had changed my persona to fit in business. You know, she's got balls. I don't want balls. So balls makes me strong and clever. No. But we fell for that. Women, you know, even um, Sheryl Sandberg wrote a book called Lean In. Lean in to a system that, quite frankly, is fucked. That's what we have. That is what's done this to society. Undoubtedly. Undoubtedly, Elon Musk knows how to make money. Jeff Bezos knows how to make money. Sir Philip Green knew how to make money. What are they doing for society? What are they doing for the world? My young son used to say to me when I walked him to school, who would you rather be, Jeff Bezos, Mama? Or if I, I said, stop asking me that question on whether I'd like to be Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk. <laughs> Please stop asking me that now, Horatio, because we're going to have a really long talk on why you shouldn't be asking me that. Yeah. But we know that the tenets of society, and particularly my age group that grew up in it, power, fame and money. You achieve those. And we go back to the, the greatest spiritual teachers, the oldest tribes in the universe and they will talk the opposite of what life and what love is and how to create. So I kept thinking, what if we did it another way? What if we actually put that into business? What would it be like? What imagine if I put into business the love that I have for my children to make them safe and secure in their homes? What would that be if I did that in work? How would that be? You know, if someone was low, that they felt so able to say to me, I'm really struggling here, Mary. I know I should be showing you a different face, and I know you're paying me, but I'm struggling. I'm paying you because actually you're good. It's a symbiotic thing. So I wrote a book called Work Like a Woman, and even, and because I wanted to work like me as a woman, and all the core behaviours, or who I am as a woman, why could that not work in business? And so I did a TED talk and I talked about kindness. And then I'm like, well, hang on a minute. What if we looked at the economy as opposed to profit first over anything and actually looked at how we put kindness and decency and humanity? Kindness was a word I chose that just, you know, like it could be anything, you know. Humanity could be the humane economy, you know, the conscious economy. Do you have a, a, a sort of mission statement for your business? Yes, we are what in the it? business of beautiful business. Okay. And beauty today isn't what I tell you I am. Beauty isn't glamour, it's not skin, it's inside. And if I come from a place of truth and love, the world will take care of me. I'm telling you, it happens. And we, we, I rebuilt my business. We collapsed in covid and I was working with businesses, very big businesses, advising them on their retail, 56 staff. They all closed down what they were doing, they were retailers, so from New York to Australia to Sydney, Melbourne, London, all stopped. Literally, we were losing money. We went for very profitable. Only one of those businesses asked me how I'm doing with my team. So we rebuilt, we went right down. We lost 150,000. I was like, I was divorcing, turned 60. Literally low life. And I went, right, I'm gonna follow this truth. I'm gonna do. And it was scary because I had a young child to pay for, maintenance, I lost my business. 
go with the truth, go with what you believe. And so we, me and my, um, she was my MD, and I said, whatever we rebuild, you take 25%, we're going to build this back together. Because I love her, she's an amazing, amazing human, and we share the same light. I might be 20 years older, but we're under that same light. And I said, let's build this back, and we will go with the truth. And so we built back, and we work with businesses who want to create social progress, give back to society, and do better. doesn't mean they won't be selling stuff, they will. But they'll be doing it from a place of consciousness, a place of respect, on how they do business. And that's what we started. Is it also commercially viable? Like, that's important, well, right? Totally. I suppose we will be making sort of what I was making before the crash, and that's turned that around very in quick. Yeah. two years. Yeah. It's saying, I know that this is the way business has to be in the future, and I know that we will want to, as people, buy or be with these businesses that actually reflect our societal values. Mm. That's going to happen. It has to happen. And I've been talking to very, very big companies that are now on this journey, you know. Mm. You mentioned the future, so that's a nice segue. Your home of the future, you have chosen your house in the Cotswolds. That's also a home of the present, but why would you see living in the Cotswolds as part of your future? Because I think the future's going to be in the country. Everything that we will be doing, it will be around farming, regrowing back from the earth, whether that's fabrics, you know, the fabrics that are grown from mushroom pulp or beetroot, or I think that the earth and our planet, if we look after it well enough, will, and will always and has always been our source. And I think we need that more to actually feed the soul, to be connected to the earth, um, to nature. That doesn't mean we won't be living in urban spaces, the mix, but it's going to be heightened and more important. And for me, it called to me, it's in Stroud, it's the Slad Valley where Laurie Lee wrote Cider with Rosie. And it's full of just these incredible activists who are going, there's another way. And I love them, you know. Stroudies, they're just brilliant people. They're brilliant. And I'm the proud Stroudie. Um, because they're always people that there was a beautiful woman who started the ecocide movement, Polly Higgins, who lived across my valley. She sadly died of cancer a few years back, age 50, incredible. But she was a lawyer who started this whole movement where basically all these big companies that are just killing our planet by putting shit into the earth, you know, your oil companies. Where's the law? We let the mythical, we let the earth, we let the divine feminine go in our search through the industrial revolution, through the patriarchy. We created structures, when I think of it, structures that weren't malleable or beautiful or natural. And we have to go back to that. That's the way. We have to go back and understand it and love it and nurture it and know that that will feed our souls and our world. What's the landscape like there? Oh, it's wonderful. It's hilly. It's stunning. I think it is the most beautiful space. I never went to Gloucestershire. I wasn't even looking in this area at all. At all. In fact, um, I went. I was in Australia on business and a friend said to me, why aren't you looking in the Cotswolds? I said, oh, bugger off. I don't want to be out there with the pink trouser brigade and you know, Cameron and all that. <laughs> I'm my worst place to be. And they went, no, 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 Mary, look at the Gloucestershire pit. And this house got sent to me. This old Jacobean, 1660s or... Oh, wow. Yeah, and um, mullion windows. I was like, oh my God. Anyway, I went to see it, and um, I was like, this is my house. I had no idea where it was, no idea about the area, nothing. It just called to me, and I've become, it's become a, a vital part of my life. So what, what would your perfect weekend in the country look like? Well, it depends. So if it's a gang of pals coming down, it's brilliant. Yeah, sometimes it might be me, mm. which, like, yeah. Which is really lovely. If Just I'm, on your own? Yeah. Yeah. In this, I love that. Because then I, I become, have you ever read The Sea, The Sea by Iris Murdoch? Well, how he creates the meal. I become that person. I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get that from the garden. I'm going to cut, you know, it, it's wonderful, the kale. And I make this on my own. I don't have to work on anyone else. And I might eat at four and have mm. a glass of wine without four. And it's really totally freeing. Oh, I just can do anything. I just will keep the same old dungarees and I've got an old Land Rover and I might just drive off to market and do that on my own and, you know, and I'll make it totally organic and you'll always bump into someone who says, oh, come round and have a drink or... And I go, I might do. 
I know, doesn't that sound terrible? <laughs> I love because that. Because I really want to follow my feeling rather than that. But if it's a gang of friends, well, so for example, next weekend, Verity's going to go down and around because she's writing from there. And then I will join her. And then my little son's going to come down with my brother. So that would be, well, be planned or what should we eat? And that's fun. It's a gang of friends, which is great. So they'll come down. I'll go down on a Thursday night. And I always do supper for them to arrive on a Friday. And then after that, I say, you all, they all know to organise. So they'll go, right, we're thinking of doing Mira Sodals, da, 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 and they'll come up with what they're going to cook. And then Saturday morning, we go to Stroud Market, which is the best market there is in the country. It's incredible. And buy all the food there, and that's fantastic. And stop off for of coffee, go around the market, and then, we might have, then we'll come back, have lunch, or have a great walk, long, long walk, beautiful walks, and then cook, and they will invariably cook. So I say, I'll get the beds ready, I'll get the wine in, but don't, and I'm, I'm sort of a bit, I call myself the kitchen bitch, I'll run around clearing or whatever. <laughs> and, um, and that's fantastic. And then Sunday, we have the best pub meals as well, the Woolpack, which mm. actually has had two brilliant reviews this weekend or so. Getting a table is difficult. Sometimes, if it, I'm on my own, I'll just go up and have a pint and just um, order kidneys, devil kidneys on toast. Oh my god, it's insane! It's just easy and fabulous. Um, do you think you'll continue working right to the bitter end? I mean, I'm lucky enough that um, you know I don't work for a corporation, and you know what I mean. I'm, yeah, I, you're in control. I, I mean, yeah, yeah. So I mean, would I start working? It is me, it is part of me. What I do, it's part of, in the way that putting my son to bed last night and reading a book is part of me. Um, mm-hmm. I don't, you know, that will evolve and it will go that way and this will go this way and who knows, you know? Yeah. You've achieved a massive amount already. How would you describe the chip in you that drives you on to do all this stuff? I don't know, I actually said it today. I don't, I just have ideas that come into my head. But I think... I get so stimulated by brilliant minds and ideas, and I think, how can I make that work? So, you know, I was reading today that there's been a department store that's opened up a charity department store, and I was like, oh, I talked about that 10 years ago. But I just couldn't fit it in in time, you know? Or I want to do this department store. I know, I want to call it Haggle, and everything has got no price in it, but you haggle. But it's fun and it's joyous. It's fabulous, democratic, and you kind of know if someone can only afford so much, and you go, okay, you know, right. or someone will be able to pay that bit more. I just think it's such a beautiful, let's not put price on it. But for all those people out there, and, and, and this is probably the majority, that have ideas and stuff, but they actually, unlike you, they don't have the wherewithal to put these things into action often. I mean, what, 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 what advice would you give them? Well, that's the, that is the, the, the big question, because we do all have it. Mm. but we are fearful and I was fearful at 60 with a big you know divorce payout and a child that I had to pay maintenance for and education so what how how can I do that and not lose this beauty that I've got in me you know people go I can't do that I've got a mortgage so I always say look at this what's the least I can get by on and with that, I, I've lived literally with a tin. I had a telephone box with money in it when I started my business. I left Harvey Nicks. I drove a Merc back in. I was earning a lot of money and said, I'm out. I literally, I lost about stone in weight. I had two young children, but I knew in my heart I couldn't keep doing this. It was going against my energy, my frequency, my flow. And when that happens, you are not the soul and energy and creativity you can be. So if you're feeling that, and you keep feeding that because you have to, because you've got this, look what you can live on. Really, truly look at your life and go, okay. And part of it might be doing, you know, two at once, doing what I call the hospice and the midwife. I'm the hospice worker, I'm the midwife. I'm the hospice, this one's dying, I don't need it anymore but I'm going to look after it while I... It's just given me enough to be the midwife. Mm, that's a good And bring way. in the baby. Mm, that is a good way. Listen, I'm not a biblical religious person, having grown up in the Catholic faith, which is enough to put most people off anything like that. <laughs> but the most repeated word in the Bible, sentence in the Bible, is do not be afraid. And we spend our life being afraid. I had a lot of fear. Didn't have anxiety, but I had a lot of fear. But not anymore. 
Mm, only my last fear, and I, and I speak to the great divine and go, you touch that one and I'm not coming up there. You can put me in hell, I don't care, but don't touch my kids. Mm. <laughs> so my, my very last question for you, you know, your form of trauma was being very young and being on your own without a parent. Mm. How often do you think about them and, and what do you think that they would make of Mary now and what you've done? That's such a good question. I mean, there was a lot of anger towards my father. Like, how could you do that? You know, like, how could you just put yourself before us, you know, go off and marry this woman, then leave our family home to her? So there was that. We had to get a lot of that out, which I've worked over the years and realised that he knew no better. And that my mother was the backbone and to, to have lost this incredible woman, um, the fiery redhead, um, was, you know, I just think he felt completely discombobulated. I just think he was at sea. So, and my mother, <clears throat> a deep, devout Catholic, you know, she left me as a, I was 16, so like, what a life, you know, as a gay woman, made a lot of money over the years, <laughs> lost a lot, given a lot away. I went into a shaman in the woods and she said, you know, the spirit of your mother is here. And she is not the mother she was on earth. And suddenly it was like, of course she's not. I can talk to her without the Catholic guilt or her belief system. Of course she hasn't got that. Of course she hasn't got that. That's just so not. It would be love and pureness. It was so freeing to say, this is me. This is me, and I know this is you, and um, not, she wasn't the Catholic, you know, guilt that was thrown upon us all, bless her. Thank you so much. It's been absolutely brilliant. Thank you all very much for listening. We really do appreciate you being here. If you've been enjoying Homing In and you can find a second to rate or review the show, that will be massively appreciated um, just because it helps other people to find it as well. Do check out our website where you'll find some photographs of some of the homes that we talked about today. The web address, of course, is themodernhouse.com, but you'll also find a link in the show notes. Homing In is produced by The Modern House and the executive producer is Kate Taylor of Feast Collective. The music is by Father. Thanks again for listening. Fingers firmly crossed for some sunshine to end this most British of summers. And I hope to see you next time.